You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 2nd of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme... We expect one third of the world economy to be in recession. And yes, uh, as you said, even countries that are not in recession, it would feel like recession for countries of, of millions of people. The head of the International Monetary Fund warns that 2023 will be tougher than last year. As the US, EU and China see their economies slow, we'll bring you an assessment of the world economy. As record numbers of people take part in Veganuary, we'll ask what it is and is it healthy? Then we head to the Alps to get a behind-the-scenes look at running a ski resort and we ask a leading psychologist whether we should be making New Year's resolutions. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godby. Sadly, 2023 brings bad economic news for most of us. The head of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, has warned that a third of the global economy will be in recession this year and it will feel like a recession for many more. Well, Vicky Price is an economist, a former joint head of the UK government's economic service and a regular contributor here to Monocle24. Thanks very much for joining us, Vicky. What is behind this IMF prediction? What the IMF is uh, looking at is uh, the sort of trends that we've seen in the last few months, um, particularly uh, the slowdown in various economies. That includes the US. It includes China, which had had its zero COVID policy, which affected production quite significantly. And of course, it includes the EU, where there have been all these concerns about gas supplies from Russia and the fact that uh, they're all trying to save energy and therefore that is having negative impacts generally on production. Not as much as we thought, um, but certainly there is a slowdown that's taking place. Now, if that carries through to 2023, which is what I think the IMF is expecting to happen, and they're probably going to be revising um, pretty soon their forecasts for the year, then that means that the rest of the world economy, which relies very heavily on the major countries growing considerably, uh, you know, robustly so that they can benefit in terms of trade, will also be affected. And the worrying factor for me is that WTO, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, has also revised its own forecasts for trade growth, particularly for manufacturers, for this year to just 1% growth. And that's not good at all for developing countries, commodity exporters. Yes, okay, uh, oil producers have done reasonably well recently. But overall, um, it spells you know, a slowdown in, in world growth. And some of the countries that depend on that trade will therefore fall into recession. I think that's what they're worried about. Mm. Uh, and let's just unpick this slightly. How pivotal is China? It's very important because, of course, the whole of Asia depends very much on exporting to China. And when China is not doing well, then uh, their own exports uh, suffer. And we've seen that, for example, even in the developed uh, countries like Japan, which um, has de- actually been a major exporter to China through the years uh, for all sorts of specialist products and, and manufacturing and and uh, electronics and so on, uh, even though, of course, China produces quite a lot of that itself these days. Uh, we've seen their 
uh, output as well being affected by this. But what has been happening in China, of course, it's a bit of ups and downs. We had a zero COVID policy, uh, which meant a real slowdown in the economy, even though it was still actually um, growing, but not as fast as before. And now we've had the reversal of it, where, of course, what's going on uh, at present is uh, the spread of, of of COVID to a population which doesn't look like it's been vaccinated sufficiently and cannot actually uh, sort of respond positively to to uh, the, the the restrictions being eased, and that of course means many people ill. Factories also not able to resume proper production, which was already affected by the zero COVID policy. Uh, and what it means is consumption also goes down with the result that all the other countries that depend very much on China are affected as well. So that's how it works there. And of course, with the other sort of big regional um, areas like the EU and uh, the US, we have similar impacts because so many other countries depend on what happens in those places. And how does the war in Ukraine influence the global economy? Oh, that's huge. Uh, one of the reasons why we're having this focus is precisely because of that. Uh, I mean, energy costs have gone up very significantly. Now, of course, what you're seeing is that uh, certainly oil prices, partly because of uh, the impact of China having slowed down, have uh, been reasonably you know, low by comparison to what had been forecast before and what was seen uh, in, you know, say, six months ago. So a lot lower than that. Uh, gas prices are also falling now. But of course, we just don't know what's going to happen in the future. If there is likely to be any escalation in um, hostilities, then that's not going to be particularly helpful. And there are indeed a number of forecasters who think that energy prices may start going up again and go up quite significantly. If that's the case, and I'm sure it's one of the scenarios that the IMF is looking at, and they've done that before, then the the growth scenario looks even worse. And, and the problem, of course, is that in many countries, wages have not kept up with inflation. They're going up. Uh, and the EU has just warned, um, in fact, the ECB has just said, and uh, Christine Lagarde, who heads it, that uh, they're worried about the rise in wages, which is catching up now with inflation, and therefore interest rates may need to go up even further. What the IMF and the World Bank are worried about is, of course, it's needed. Interest rates have to increase because of higher inflation. But this type of synchronized increase in interest rates is a problem because it just leads the world economy into an even slower pace of growth. And, and if the war in Ukraine gets worse, then it's quite likely then to sink quite a large part of the world into recession. And is there any way of uh, forecasting how long this will last? We can't really forecast what's going to happen uh, with the war in Ukraine. We don't know what Russia will do next. And I think that's one of the of the big problems. But the world has adjusted a little bit to all this. And if things stay as they are, even if there are still hostilities there, but uh, we, we sort of know roughly what the impact is likely to be if things don't get much worse in the next few months, then the expectation is that inflation is going to come down quite significantly. And that's good news because it also will mean that people who now are losing out hugely in terms of wages in real terms will start feeling a little bit richer. But for the time being, uh, certainly for the next three or four months, the likelihood is that the consumers are going to be very, very careful what they spend. Later in the year, I think there's quite a lot of forecasts suggesting a bit of a bounce back. Um, unless, of course, things deteriorate in Ukraine. Mm. And just having a quick look at the UK economy, of course, we're seeing mass strikes across the country. Uh, and, and this is for higher wages. The government says they can't do that because of interest rates. Is that correct? They could um, 
offer more if they wanted to. Interest rates won't have very much to do with this. But what would happen instead is if the Bank of England is worried about inflation as a result of higher wages, uh, then they will be inclined to increase interest rates faster than would otherwise be the case. I think that's probably what you meant. And that's really where the sort of balancing act will have to be. Uh, but in reality, quite a lot of those strikes are in the public sector. And this the public sector wages do not get immediately reflected in prices that people pay, except, of course, in the rail uh, sector where, yes, transport costs can go up, you know, fares, train fares uh, could could rise to meet those pay demands. But otherwise, the, if you look at the entire public sector, including National Health Service, then you in the UK, you don't pass those costs on because basically it's a free service. But of course, if you give people more money in their pockets, they will spend it. So there is an indirect impact on inflation. But it's not as big as as I think it's been claimed to be in terms of the inflationary impact. But there is no doubt the, the Bank of England will be looking at all that and, and seeing how that, of course, gets reflected in private sector pay, which has been increasing considerably faster, of course, and in some sectors, very fast indeed, way above inflation, because there are still loads and loads of skill shortages around. Mm. And finally, Vicky, when we inevitably had this conversation, as we will, at the beginning of January 2024, will it be better news? It should be. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed, basically. <laughs> Vicky Price, thank you very much indeed. Now, here's Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Ukraine says it killed hundreds of Russian soldiers on Saturday in a long-range rocket strike in Makiva, eastern Ukraine. During his Sunday night address to the nation, Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia is afraid and that he senses fear. Dozens of inmates have escaped from a prison in northern Mexico after it was attacked by gunmen in the city of Ciudad Juarez. At least 14 people died and 24 inmates escaped, according to state officials. Crowds of mourning Catholics gathered in St. Peter's Square in the Vatican last night to prepare to say goodbye to the former Pope. Almost 100,000 people are expected to pass through St. Peter's Basilica over the next three days to pay their respects to the late Pope Benedict XVI. And Japanese Emperor Naruhito greeted well-wishers at the Imperial Palace in Tokyo for the first time in three years. Naruhito was joined by Empress Misako and their daughter, Princess Aiko, and other members of the family reviving an annual New Year tradition that was paused during the COVID pandemic. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Laura. Now, this month, record numbers of people are taking part in Veganuary, a movement to stop using or eating any animal products for January. Veganuary's organisers argue a plant-based diet is good for your health, reduces animal suffering and helps the environment. And with inflation pushing up prices of meat and alcohol, there's a chance giving up both could save you some money. Well, Vanessa Sturman is a plant-based health coach and speaker and founded Energize and Thrive Plant-Based. Vanessa, many thanks for joining us. What is driving record numbers of people to join Veganuary? Yeah, so I think it's a lot of things. So first of all, the accessibility of vegan and plant-based food has really, really gone up. Um, so in the supermarkets, you can find much more vegan burgers, vegan sausages, vegan pizza. But people are also finding out how good this is for your health to eat really great plant-based whole food. So for people to understand that eating a bean stew or a chickpea curry is going to be better for your health than a beef stew or a chicken curry. 
as well as the environmental side of it that is much better for our environment, water usage, and also much better for the animals uh, and a much more compassionate way of eating. Mm. I mean, in the past, people who are vegans have just, some of them existed on, you know, chips and bread. <laughs> um, that, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's a danger though, isn't it? Well, if you are not looking enough at having a really, truly balanced meal, then then absolutely. But I'd argue that that's true for any diet, that we can do that in an unhealthy way. It's very important that whoever we are to have a really great, healthy diet, good energy. We're looking at what's on our plate and saying, you know, do I have some brilliant protein? Do I have some complex carbs and lots of vegetables? Uh, that's really important to have a bit of consciousness around that. So if one is considering signing up for Veganuary, what are some top tips? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I'd say get stocked up in your kitchen with some real staples for cooking. And this is important anyway, if you want to be healthy. So lots of fruit, lots of vegetables, whole grains like brown rice, lots of beans and lentils and tins of tomatoes. I would say enjoy yourself is a really important one. So think about what are your favorite foods? If your favorite food or cuisine is uh, Indian or Vietnamese, make sure you go and find a fantastic restaurant that serves those and look up recipes around those as well. Um, I'd also say, you know, do a little bit of planning, you know, find some fantastic recipes, think ahead a bit as well. So make sure that you're not rushing around and not got anything to have for breakfast, that you've looked up a great chia seed pudding or something like that with fruit. And I'd also say, don't put yourself under too much pressure. You know, if you can't do 100% vegan or plant-based, it doesn't matter. You're going to be having benefits for your health, the environment, the animals. Even if you just have you know, half your time vegan or plant-based, it's all going to help. So don't put pressure on yourself and just have fun. And is bulk cooking quite an important part of this? I think it is really important. I think this is great advice for anyone just getting more healthy. The more we bulk cook, we save time and we all know that our time is money you know, make, you know, two times the amount, even if you're making uh, a mushroom lasagna or something, make two lasagnas, you could put one in the freezer and cook it another time, for example. And you could also take that out as a meal for the next day. So take it to work and you save on the costs of buying lunch out. Mm, I really worry about labelling. I think that sometimes we really need to scrutinise what's on there, because although the meat may have been taken out, sometimes some horrible things have been put in. So I think what's important to remember is that processed food is a bit of a food problem as opposed to a, a vegan or plant-based problem. Um, mostly, yes, what is more healthy for our diet is to have whole food. So wherever you can be using um, full fruits, vegetables, beans, whole grains, that is going to be much more healthy for you than buying processed. But in the end, what I'd say is if you need a bit of convenience, process can be really helpful and really think about what else is going on your plate. So if you were to just have um, a vegan sausage sandwich and bread for dinner, I would say, well, that's not very balanced. Please think about getting sweet potato on there, lots of vegetables, maybe some guacamole really make that a balanced meal. But if you need that bit of convenience, it's absolutely there. And what about carbs? I mean, traditionally at this time of year, many people swear off them. 
Yeah. So I think, again, it's all in balance. So carbs are really, really good for us. And actually, there's a lot of people who go very low carb uh, and then really get hungry, struggle with their diet and weight and go back to an unhealthy way of eating. Carbs are really important for energy. Uh, carbs, you know, if you're talking about whole grains um, and root vegetables, these are really important. They're also really important for our gut health, our energy and nutrients. So we need those, but we need them in balance. We need to make sure we've got lots of great protein with that. So that might be tofu or tempeh and beans and lots of vegetables and also some good fats. It's when we have too many of something and out of balance or too much refined carbs that we might struggle with our health, energy and our weight. And so for people who are considering going vegan for the month or perhaps for, for as long as possible forever, yeah. uh, do they need uh, vitamin supplements? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So one thing to know, I think vitamin supplements are really good, whatever diet you're on, because our soil is a lot more degraded than it was. But if you are going vegan, it is very important to take B12. Now, actually, the soil has very little B12 and many animals are actually given B12, which is how it often ends up in the meat. Um, but do take B12 because you're not going to be getting enough of that. So that is important. But taking supplements can be great anyway, because as a nation, we can be quite depleted because of our diets, but also because the soil is just not where it was 60 years ago. Vanessa, thank you very much indeed. Uh, and that that uh, was uh, Vanessa Sturman speaking to us there from Energize and Thrive uh, Plant Based. Uh, you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You're back with a briefing on Monocle 24 with me, Georgina Godwin. Now we head to the Alps to get a behind-the-scenes look at running a ski resort. With costs rising due to higher energy bills, operators are eager to save money while still ensuring visitors get the most out of their winter holiday. One high-altitude destination ahead of the curve is Oberregen, ski resort in Italy's South Tyrol region. Officials there have made savvy investments in the past to save on energy and at the same time put money into better facilities to attract crowds to the mountain. Monaco's Milan correspondent Ivan Cavallo travelled to the slopes of Oberegen to learn more. Ski holidays are big business across the Alps. In Switzerland, winter tourism generates about 2.5% of GDP, while in ski-mad Austria, Officials estimate the industry accounts for almost 4%. In Italy, skiing holidays before COVID hit were worth 11% of the country's tourism revenue each year. That's 10.4 billion euros spent on everything from ski passes to hotel stays and dining on the slopes. But this winter brings plenty of challenges. Besides a warming climate, there are rising energy prices and inflationary pressures on discretionary spending. So operators have to be extra careful managing the bottom line as they wait to see how many families will fork out money for an alpine vacation. One place keeping costs under control is the resort of Oberegen in Italy's Dolomite Mountains. Located in the Egental Valley in South Tyrol, the resort has turned to nature to keep its energy consumption down. Oberegen's marketing director, Thomas Odenthaler, takes me on a tour of the resort's solution to heating local buildings. Yeah, here we are in our um, wood-burning heating plant, bio by biomass. 
So, uh, Thomas, what I like about this is, of course, it's very warm. Here we are up at uh, uh, 1,500 meters, um, and it's snowing outside. And inside, it, it, it feels like a sauna because it's so hot. And there's also this beautiful smell of, of the wood. Yeah, it is uh, very hot inside because we are burning uh, the waste of the, of the wood, of the sawmills here in the Eckendal Valley from the trees uh, from the forest around he this uh, heating plant. And now in terms of the, the savings, because this, this plant was uh, installed in 2007. So what does that mean uh, from, from then to today in terms of the savings uh, you've had? Yeah, actually we save uh, over 500,000 liters uh, heating oil each year. And uh, so we've been able also to contain costs because uh, of uh, the choices made uh, 15 years ago. Until now we saved over 7.5 million liters heating oil. The whole uh, ski resort and the hotels and uh, also flats, uh, private houses, everybody is connected to Oberegen, to this uh, heating uh, plant. And uh, it helps us uh, to, to save costs, but also to save the environment. So as you can see, that's uh, our wood chips. And uh, once we put the wood chips uh, into the silo, uh, our plant, biomass plant, uh, is completely automated. And so that's also an advantage. We don't need anybody looking after this plant. It's working completely automatically. Back in his office, Odenthaler shows me a map detailing the network linking the biomass plant to the resort's hotels, which offer over 1,000 beds and need plenty of hot water. Oberegen has also found creative ways to lower its electricity bill. Another thing that we did um, to keep costs down is uh, slowing down the, um, the speed of our chairlifts, not so that uh, guests can um, realize, but uh, just to reduce uh, energy. All our lifts are uh, powered by hydroelectric uh, uh, energy. And uh, also the night skiing, uh, we reduced uh, the illuminated slopes on uh, two times a week. I then hopped on a chairlift to journey up to the resort's alpine hut, Oberholz, a spectacular piece of modern architecture set at 2,000 meters above sea level, designed in 2016. It uses a set of geothermal pumps buried into the mountain that extract heat from the ground so that staff and skiers stay cozy while enjoying its three panoramic windows in the dining room. At Oberholz, which caters to over 500 guests every day, Staff have even gotten more creative with the menu, including specialty cocktails using local ingredients. Tobias Pfeffer of Oberholz. Now we try to do something even more. We try to do, uh, go with the next step with drinks. So we try to bring the afterwork, as you know it, in the cities to the ski slopes with a lot of different spritzes. And we do the spritzes with the syrups we do ourselves in the kitchen. A little bit crazy stuff as well but uh, always with some local ingredients. Now, for example, I just had this beautiful Negroni, um, but yes. it was made with Lagrine, which is a local grape. It's a local grape, but I made the Negroni with the Lagrine port, so that makes it really special. We have two different port wines in uh, South Tyrol, and um, the producer himself went to Portugal to see how the port is made, and then he, he had the genius idea to make it with Lagrine because he said it's uh, almost the same grape as they use in Portugal. 
And do you find with this unique architecture of these three uh, windows, sort of uh, as a fallen tree branch, do you find that people stay longer here to appreciate uh, the interior? They do, especially on days like this when, when it's a little bit colder outside and it's snowing. It's a really romantic interior we have in here. And so people, they don't even notice the time they spend in here. Oberegen's past investments in environmentally friendly power generation, together with its emphasis on good design at its Alpine hut, have seen it generate a healthy profit so far this season as skiers return to the slopes after two years of pandemic-related problems. It shows how being proactive can indeed pay dividends. For Monocle in South Tyrol, I'm Ivan Carvalho. And to discover more about the business of ski resorts, you can read Ivan's piece in Monocle's special winter newspaper edition, Alpino, out now on newsstands. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. What can you learn in a minute? More than you think if you subscribe to Monocle's daily email newsletter. The Monocle Minute provides fresh analysis of breaking news and direct-to-your-inbox insights on everything from global affairs to entrepreneurship. On Saturdays with the weekend edition, we'll widen your horizons with rye observation, drinking and dining recommendations and must-know openings, plus Tyler Brulé's worldly weekly column too. Subscribe now at monocle.com slash minute. Now, the new year is a time where many of us consider the changes we'd like to make in our lives and how to accomplish them. But New Year's resolutions often get a bad name. So can tying self-improvement to the new year actually be a good thing? With me now is Zoe Mallet, who's a coach, a psychologist and a culture consultant. Zoe, welcome to the programme. Are we setting ourselves up for failure by attempting to change on the 1st of January? Thanks so much for having me. And it's, it's a good question because there's a lot of pressure around this time of the year when we're reflecting on maybe the past. And if we haven't maybe reached certain goals, then we feel this panic that we have to set all of these goals that we didn't uh, reach in the previous year. And that forces a lot of us to feel a lot of pressure to then think about how we're going to plan the next year. But there's a lot of studies around how actually resolutions can be very healthy but it just depends how you're setting them up. So it's always good to think about how you can grow and how you can change. It's good to think about that throughout the year rather than just focus it on something short-term at the beginning. So if you are like, like setting new goals, you have to think about how you can set yourself up for success and what the long-term gain is gonna be rather than that maybe that panic that you have in that short-term where you're forcing yourself to maybe complete things that aren't maybe realistic or haven't been planned out very well. So you can ask yourself, it's it's all about planning in the beginning. So really understanding why you want to change certain things, where that's come from, what does it look like? Are these goals realistic? What's your timeline for it? Is it actually going to be over the year? Is it something that you can actually maybe achieve in a few weeks or in a few months? really understanding why the goals are important to you and how are you going to know once you've started achieving them? So what happens once you've reached that goal and what is your history with goal setting? So has it worked in the past? Are you able to set goals and and hit them quite easily? 
if you are great, how can you make sure that you're using that in the new goals that you're setting? If you haven't been very successful in the past with goal setting and New Year's resolutions, it's really about asking yourself what it was about maybe that resolution in particular or what it was about how you were feeling at that point that meant you weren't reaching these New Year's resolutions and goals yourself. Um, it's all about planning. So it is... We're not setting ourselves up for failure unless you haven't made a really clear plan about how that is actually going to look over the next year. And it's always about thinking about that bigger term goal rather than just conquering something short term. And what are the most common resolutions? I mean, it's always, it seems to me, stop drinking, exercise more and lose weight. Yeah, and I think that's because December is a time where we are probably drinking more, eating a lot more, and then we get to this point and then we um, maybe feel a bit bad for doing that. But they are typically the ones that people start to focus on. But what I think we're going to start seeing this year is the continued rise of people focusing on their mental health a little bit more. And I think that we're going to start to see that come into a lot more of these resolutions, that they actually want to spend a bit more time focusing on their mental health creating their, their own boundaries to just help them feel a little bit more in control. Mm. The Washington Post recommends that instead of setting a specific goal, we choose a word that captures the mindset we want to adopt in, in 2023. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is a good approach? And if so, what would be your word? Ooh, I think my word for this year, for like my own personal uh, resolutions that I'm setting is I think just have a bit more adventure. I think definitely over the last um, few years with everything that's been happening um, with COVID, we've just been getting back into that normal routine. And now, yeah, my word would definitely be adventure. Absolutely. I was just reading Woody Guthrie's resolutions from 1943. Two of them are Mm. wash teeth, if any, and help win war, beat fascism. And I think that that, of course, is something that will loom largely in all of our lives this year. Mm, for sure. Zoe, thank you very much indeed. That was Zoe Mallet. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. This year, we resolve to continue bringing the very best news and analysis on the show and hope your resolution is to listen to more fabulous programming on Monocle 24. The show was produced by Tom Webb and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing's back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>